0: Hey, I hope you're having a, a great week. We are in this series, and we're wrapping it up. We've been in the Gospel of John, going through the, the Passion section, or the last week of Jesus' life, and we've been digging into uh, all of the resurrection stuff and everything that follows the resurrection. And if you were here last week, then you were here uh, to, to listen to Deb Lawson talk about this Really powerful experience that Peter has after the resurrection. You know the story of Peter. Uh, He denies Jesus and he gives up the whole thing and says, you know what, I'm going back to fishing. And uh, and then Jesus intervenes in a fishing expedition and they cook a little breakfast. And then Jesus welcomes Peter back into the fold. And he does so through a, a powerful conversation. If you missed Deb's message, you ought to listen to it. It's, it's incredible, very thoughtful. And it will help you understand how Jesus feels about you when you go a direction you maybe shouldn't go. And this is the measure of God's love. And, and she used this verse to help us understand what she was saying. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Let's say it together. You ready? Say it with me. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I, some of you may have grown up in a church that had a different thing other than the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It could have been the, you know, the shame of God or the judgment of God or the anger of God. And if you grew up in a church like that, then it's important to pay attention to what Paul says when he writes to the Romans about the nature of the gospel. Because what he says is, is transformative In fact, Deb help us understand that that idea of transformation is the very core of that word, repentance, that it is a a transforming or this love creates a change in us, a metamorphosis from the inside out. It's the root of the word that is in the Greek. and in, In that regard, what this verse says, and Deb made it clear last week, that it is love that leads us to love other people. It's not expectation or responsibility or guilt or anything like that. It's love that leads us to love. And so you ought to hop on and listen to it. But it's this verse that's gonna help us finish this series and go to the very next little piece of interaction that happens. I don't really think it's the ending of the gospel that John had in mind. I think it is an interesting thing that happens. And I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on this little interaction That Peter has with Jesus, but it will help us to get our minds around this idea of God's kindness. I don't know what you think about God's kindness, but my guess is is that most of you experience who God is or his nature, his love for you based on the circumstances of your life. Another way to say that would be this. When things are going well, you have a sense that God's love is flowing for you on your behalf. And that he's with you, that he's along with you on the journey. And when things aren't going well, you might feel like that God is distant or that he has something against you or you've done something wrong and he's withholding his love or blessing from you. And most of us do the hard work of trying to figure out, well, what did I do and how do I get back on track? And... You know, I feel like me and God are kind of at odds because things aren't going well. I've, I'm in a lot of discussions that aren't great. Job isn't great. Finances aren't great. You know, my investments, they're not even there anymore. You know, all of these kinds of things, things aren't going well. A lot of us experience God, God's kindness in that, in that very way. And so this issue of kindness is, is where we want to hang for just a moment. We would say that we experience God's kindness in these ways. Maybe he's answered a prayer. Maybe we have a a healthy family or could be that we have a happy life, whatever that looks like for you or for me. Things are going well, more financial resources. You could even sum it up by saying things are uh, bigger, better, or more. And And if this is true, and it's not really true, but it's often how we feel, then the opposite would also be true, that... Maybe we feel like God isn't kind when these things aren't happening in our life. And you could probably add to the list, I bet. You know, things about your career, things about your kids, things about them being, oh, I don't know, obedient or doing the things that you told them that they should do. A happy life is the kindness of God. And when we perceive this to be the case, of course, this creates a relationship between God's kindness and how our life is going. And in a world that is full of hardship, pain, and difficulty, well, that makes this very, very hard. My guess is if you and I were to sit and have some coffee and we could chat about God's kindness, and you hadn't seen this yet, and I asked you this question. Tell me some way that God has shown his kindness to you lately. My guess is your answer would be something along these lines. Well, you know, things are going great at work, you know, finally got that promotion, or we we finally found our way with this or that, or, you know, I, I was sick, she was sick, we prayed our way through it, and we're better now. There would be something about God showing up in some tangible way that you would probably go to to say, that's how I've experienced God's kindness, Lately, And when we understand it this way, well, this gets kind of complicated. Let me add one more layer to it for you. We all know people who are experiencing a lack of these things in their life. And we have phrases for that, you know, well, you know, that's what happens when you make bad choices. Well, that's what happens when things don't go well or when you don't treat others well or when you don't, you fill in the blank. Or we say something a little more theological like, well, there but for the grace of God go me. And we also have people in our life that are experiencing maybe this in abundance. People that it just feels like things are working out for them. Things seem to be easy for them, going smoothly, going well. And we find ourselves on either one end of this spectrum or the other. Now, what's going to unfold for us in the Gospel of John in this quick little exchange with Jesus is the one thing, I think, as I talk with people about their walk with Jesus and who God is to them and how they're experiencing either his kindness, his goodness, or what they may even feel like is his discipline or disappointment, the one thing that trips us up along the way and leaves us in a spiritual state of being Well, the theological term of stuck. And so this is exactly what Peter and Jesus deal with in the last few verses of the Gospel of John. So we're going to pick up right where Deb left off. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. I tell you the truth, he says to Peter, when you were young, how many of you consider yourself young? Let me see your hands. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on, put them up, very good. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. My guess is some of you will pick where you're going to lunch today. You you may not win that discussion, but somebody among you will pick it. You probably dressed yourself. Thankfully, some of you had somebody in your home that dressed you. They looked at what you were going to wear, and they said, you're not going to wear that, are you? And so you changed, decided you would wear something different. But for the most part, you picked your own clothes. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, now you even have to read the rest of the statement to know that what's gonna come next isn't gonna be good, right? Could be the butt that ticks you off, could be the old that gives you the clue. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Now, I don't know if you've read this statement before that Jesus gives to Peter, but it's one of the most unique, uh, parable ish kinds of statements. That people throughout centuries have tried to figure out why did Jesus say this and what did he mean? John gives us a clue, but this clue isn't helpful so much. It only helps us understand it in retrospect. When I read this over the last few weeks, several times, my thought was, now that I'm in my mid-50s, my thought was, well, that sounds like everybody's life to me. Sounds like my parents' life right now. That's probably what I'm looking forward to. We've talked about this before. Now, Jesus says this to Peter, and Peter begins to see a future of his that is a little less than desirable. It's a prophecy of sorts that Jesus gives. John tells us what it means. In fact, the very next piece says this. John has this little aside. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Here's a couple freebies. You can do what you want with them. You and I have the opportunity by the way we die or the way we face our mortality to glorify God. That's obvious by what John says. That's one. The second is this. John wrote this probably around 90 CE or AD, depending on the calendar you're looking at, which was sometime after Nero's reign, Peter died in the mid-60s, probably around 64, 65. So, I don't know, at least a couple decades before John wrote his gospel. Peter died as a part of the great persecution of Rome. And we really don't know how he died. But historical tradition says that he was crucified because of his faith. And there are some historical traditions that say that when it came time for him to be killed and martyred for his faith, That Peter said, you cannot crucify me the way you killed Jesus. I'm not worthy of that. You must crucify me upside down. And so when Jesus says to Peter, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. John, a couple decades later, he remembers what Jesus says to Peter And he remembers how Peter died. And so I don't know if when Jesus said this to Peter, people saw it as a prophecy of his crucifixion or not. I doubt it. But John remembers it and says, that's what it meant. Now, it's in this moment that John is nearby and Peter's having this conversation with Jesus and the very next thing that Jesus says is worth noting, it's this. Then Jesus told him what, say it with me, follow me. Now, if if Steven Spielberg were directing the Gospel of John, if he were producing the whole thing, it would be at this moment that he would have had, you know, the cameras in the right place and he's got them all in the frame. He's got, you know, Peter just a little bit far back. You can see John, but he's kind of blurry and there's Jesus, he's right in the middle and he just turns. And camera zooms in on Jesus' face and he looks at Peter and says, what does he say? Follow me. And Spielberg says, and cut. That's a wrap. And he's like, ah, oh, you hit your marks. That was amazing. That was incredible. That was beautiful. Way to, way to act it out. It's amazing. But that is not what Peter had in mind. It would have been the perfect ending to the Gospel of John. But Peter, well, he opens his mouth again. As is per his character, he begins to talk. And I think Spielberg would have been like, oh, gosh, I can't believe this is on tape still. Jesus says, follow me. And then Peter looks behind him, turns around, saw behind him the disciple that Jesus loved and says, what's he say? What about him, Lord? What about him? Now, I want you to understand the gravity of this moment. Uh, Peter had left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus predicted his denial, and he, in fact, followed through on Jesus' prophecy then. He's cast aside, dejected. He feels like he's worthless. He decides to go back to fishing. Jesus interrupts their fishing expedition and, in immense love, acceptance, and grace, pulls him back into the fold and does this mere minutes before this little exchange. And in the middle of that exchange, Peter goes from being loved back in to the very arms of Jesus and some tasty fish on the side. And then he hears this future prophecy of his life. And he begins to compare. He wonders. Jesus, the the picture you painted of my future doesn't sound amazing. I don't know that I really am looking forward to life now. Now, I know everyone dies, and I know getting old is not for the faint of heart, but I don't spend every day pondering it. But Jesus speaking these words over Peter would have made it weigh heavy on him, and he would have thoughtfully considered what his future would be like. And so immediately... He looks behind him, and there's, there's John right behind him. And he wonders, will he have to deal with the same future I'm going to have? Now, again, I don't think this is the ending that Spielberg or John had in mind, but this is what happened, and this is how it unfolded. And so we are literally a few verses away from the very ending of John's gospel And as it unfolds, there's at least one more thing that John wants us to take with us. And it's very simple, it's very plain, but it is elusive to most of us. And it's this, comparison destroys contentment and gratitude. I remember when I was in school growing up, uh, studies didn't come easy for me. Uh, I, I didn't really want to work that hard at it but I wanted to not get in trouble at home and so I would find myself doing what I had to to get by or maybe studying hard just to get the grade my you know C's get degrees that was my motto right and I remember sitting in class after class and the tests would come back and they would get passed out and this there'd be some person next to me who would say this is usually a math class by the way they would say, you know, I didn't even study for this test. I just showed up and they would get an A handed to them and I could see it, you know, it's written in red, much bigger than anything else on the paper and I would get my C plus. And in that moment, my C plus didn't seem near as attractive as I thought it would feel. I didn't flunk, but only having it sit in comparison to another student who didn't have to study, who found themselves on honor roll all the time, In fact, my success or my ability to feel good about who I was as a student was in direct, what? Comparison to somebody else and how they did. Peter, as a grown man who's now just been loved in spite of his mistakes, finds himself tripping over the same truth that comparison completely destroys contentment and gratitude. I don't know about you, but we do this in a thousand different ways. And when we do this, we begin to call into question God's goodness and His kindness to us. When we compare, we compare station of life, uh, contentment of family, the size of our house. I pull up at a stoplight and I look over and I see the truck that I just bought, except it's a year newer and has some of the options I didn't spring for and I begin to add up the cost of those things and wonder if I can get them in an aftermarket deal. Why? Well, two stoplights ago, my truck was plenty enough, but now I find myself wanting because of what I see and what I covet. Comparison destroys contentment and gratitude. I can feel grateful for what I have, for how much I have, for where it sits, and where my life is. Could be your career, could be your bank account, could be the stock market, it could be your kids and their success, or it could be the obedience of your dog at the dog park. But when I'm faced with somebody else who has more, or different, or better, then my contentment begins to erode. And when that happens, I begin to call into question God's goodness and his kindness to me. Why? Well, comparison destroys contentment and gratitude. Now, it's important that we all acknowledge that this isn't an overnight transformation. We aren't incredibly grateful on Monday and bitter and demanding and hateful on Tuesday. In fact, these things happen uh, very slowly very methodically and it happens over time as we see someone's marriage and we wonder why ours hasn't grown to that place of peace or joy or contentment or we see somebody's health and we think you know what maybe that can happen with me or somebody's career and we think our trajectory is stalled it happens one drip at a time we begin to compare And then we have a good day. Maybe some success. Maybe some movement in the direction where our gratitude is beginning to slip away. But eventually, the cups of contentment and gratitude, well, they are empty if comparison begins to win the day. So the question that we ought to ask before we go any further is how important are contentment and gratitude? They feel like niceties in a, middle of a pandemic they feel like something that we ought to work on when we have the time not something that ought to take our main focus but if we think that way if we misunderstand the nature of contentment and gratitude then we'll also misunderstand their importance how important are contentment and gratitude and how does comparison affect our life Well, it's true that comparison destroys contentment and gratitude, but it's maybe even more true, a darker truth would be this, that comparison magnifies our darker tendencies in our life. Not only does it take gratitude and move it away, not only does it make us feel less thankful than we were literally one minute before, it also takes the things that we tend to, to move toward that are a bit darker in our own hearts and minds and souls, and it puts a magnifying glass on them, and we can feel them in an instant. If depression is something you're prone to, well, comparison is gonna dig the hole deeper, and you'll find yourself unable to get out. Are you competitive? Uh, nobody thinks they're competitive until they lose a family game, and then we find out who's actually competitive. Who's competitive in the room? Let me see your hands. How many of you are married to somebody who doesn't think they're competitive? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Comparison magnifies our darker tendencies. If you're competitive, comparison will teach you that life is a zero-sum game, and what that means is, is for you to win, somebody else has to what, and so you will find yourself celebrating somebody's ill fortune and you will wonder why nobody celebrates your success. That's what comparison will do. Pride, is that your deal? Uh, is that the thing you kind of slip into when you don't mean to, that you look around and somebody after first service said, "You know, I don't pull up to the stoplight and covet the car next to me. I pull up to the stoplight and wonder why they would drive such a terrible vehicle. Then, you know That's what they said. I said, oh, so you listen to the pride portion of the message. And then they left the building. I don't know what was, they were angry about something. If pride is the thing that you lean toward or that you are tempted by, then comparison will keep you stuck between insecurity and pride, ping ponging back and forth. And you will never find rest or peace or contentment, let alone gratitude. Are you a perfectionist? Comparison will make you absolutely convinced that you can never have or be enough. So when was the last time you fell into the trap of comparison? When was it? You remember what it was? It was a co-worker, a friend, fellow mom, fellow dad. When was it? What was it about? What was the thing that poked you and you thought, Contentment began to just ebb away, just a little, just a little. It happens slowly, methodically, over time. So, when was it for you? Well, Jesus, here's Peter. Peter says, Well, what about him, Lord? What about him? It's a great statement, so good. And so, Jesus looks at him and says, Jesus replied, "If I want him to remain alive until I return, say it with me. Yellow, you ready? What is that to you? Say it again. Say it again. What is that to you? And you could put, if I want him to uh, remain alive until I return, you you could put anything in that part of the sentence, right? If I want to give them a bank account triple yours, say it with me. What is that to you? And of course." Many other things could fit in that sentence as well that are much more serious, much closer to home, and much more... Well, we become absolutely convinced that God's kindness has left the building. What is that to you? And then Jesus is like, let's give Spielberg his ending, right? As for you, what? Follow me. Follow me. And so if you struggle with comparison, uh, like everyone else that breathes, just like you. And if you find yourself uh, allowing contentment and gratitude to slowly erode over time, uh, it's very important that you are aware of the circumstances that you're in or the issues that create that for you. For some of you, you value just a great variety of different things. Maybe you value financial stability, maybe you value a peaceful, quiet home, maybe you value, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you value, or whatever it is that you place a high value on, those are the things where you will find contentment and gratitude being attacked through the issue of comparison. Some of you long for a relationship with your parents that you never had. And so when you hear somebody talk about spending time with their mom or their dad, that's the issue that allows it to rise up in you. What is it that causes it to show up? And then what are the spiritual truths that will help you fight the tendency to lean into comparison? Because I promise you this. If contentment and gratitude feel elusive to you, comparison is a problem. If anger comes out of nowhere for you, comparison is a problem. Contentment and gratitude don't even figure into the equation yet, if that's their deal. And so what would you read? Where would you go? What could you lean into when it comes to scriptural, spiritual truth that might help you with this issue, fighting it and overcoming it. I'm gonna send you to two places, okay? If you want, you can snap a picture with your phone or whatever if you don't have a memory like mine. used to be two transformational prayers that you could pray. And you could do this in a variety of ways. You could decide you're just gonna read them out of your Bible and you're gonna read them each day and you're gonna focus in on one. First, you're very familiar with the Lord's Prayer, Right? You've prayed it before in church, you've read it before, but when you read the Lord's Prayer with the light of comparison, gratitude and contentment in mind, then you will catch phrases about uh, the fact that relationships are tough if you don't forgive. You will catch the idea that Jesus didn't say, "You know, we pray for an incredible harvest this fall. Jesus didn't pray for that, he prayed for what? Daily bread, say it with me, daily bread. So it's every day, contentment and gratitude flow every day. You can't have contentment and gratitude for tomorrow. You have to plant the seed today and reap the harvest today. And so the Lord's Prayer can be very helpful for you. But I think even more powerful, you might find the infinite love prayer. And it's Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. And it's this passage where he talks about how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God. And this set of verses are absolutely transformational when it comes to understanding how God has provided everything that we need. And so like we said, comparison happens in little drips. And gratitude and contentment, they leave us in little bits until finally the cup is empty and we wonder how come our life isn't the way we want and discontentment reigns, usually anger and anxiety and fear replace all of the things that God intends to give you freely, but comparison has stole them because you look at other people and you feel like God's kindness is for them and not for you. But if all of that feels a little, I don't know, theoretical to some of you, if all of that feels just a little bit theological or a little bit lofty and maybe you read scripture, but maybe not like this and you need something that maybe is a little bit more direct or a little bit more, you know, helpful for people like me and you, then this is the piece I have for you. Just stop it. Just, just knock it off, okay? I, I mean, you know, really, you should, you should stop it. You should, you know you compare, and you know who you compare to. You know what you should do? Say it with me. You should. You didn't even say that like you meant it. What you should probably do. What you should probably do if you find yourself comparing is you should. That was a little better. That was a little better. I give you a C plus on that. You should probably stop it. And you can do this by saying, "Lord, poke me when I compare. Just poke me, and God will. He will, through the power of his spirit, He loves you so much. He doesn't want you living this life where you believe His kindness is elusive. Lord, just just poke me if I feel jealous or envious of other people and their circumstances and what they have. You've given me enough, more than I deserve. Just poke me. Or just nudge me when my heart moves this place of discontentment. Nudge me. And some of you, like me, need to pray, Lord, just give me a holy kick. Just give me a holy kick right where I need it the most when pride gets a foothold and when I begin to think that you've not given me what I need. Comparison will steal it all. And that's exactly what Peter found out. So we stop it. So I'm going to ask those who are serving communion to us this morning to make their way back to get the elements and prepare for us. And I want us to read together, all of us, this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. This is the, from that passage I mentioned. It's the infinite love prayer. It's one prayer that Paul prays, right in the middle of Ephesians, and it is powerful, meaningful, deep, and transformational. And so we'll read this together, you can join me. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. This experience of communion together is perfect for people like me and for people like you who struggle with comparison. If you have over the last weeks or months or years wondered about God's kindness towards you, Then communion answers that question. This is the nature of God's love for you, that it is complete, unconditional, full, and it is not generic in its nature. God's love comes to you with your name on it. He knows your story. He knows your experience. He knows your struggle. He knows the very things that you think you've done that keep you some distance from him. And this is why at that holy breakfast on the beach, he welcomed Peter back into his arms. So Jesus, with his friends, held up the bread, and he said, this bread represents my body, and it is torn for you. It's given to you. And he held up the cup the cup of Passover and he poured into it the fruit of the vine and he said to his friends and to us today this is the cup of the new covenant it's my blood is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins and this gift that we are given reminds us that we have everything that we need that death will not hold us that life itself is the gift that God has given us and the very fact that you draw breath in this moment, well it is the the gifts of God for the people of God and today as we take communion we are reminded that God's love is complete that it is his nature and his love is given freely fully and completely And so, Lord, as we take these gifts today, we declare that you are more than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. We receive your love in this way, and these elements remind us that at our deepest point of need, you will always find us, and you will give us exactly what your love dictates enough fully and completely and so lord right now in this moment right here in this place in this room and those watching online we confess the sin of comparison that it causes us to call into question your kindness and so this common meal that we share together these emblems remind us that your kindness leads us to places of transformational change we want contentment and gratitude to overflow and so we lay aside comparison and jealousy and envy and anger and anxiety and we open our hands before you and we say and we declare that we trust you so we receive these elements from you for us in the name of jesus we all pray together and we say amen